Welcome to CP's Deep Dive. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. I interview authors whose books I have narrated, books written by authors making a positive difference in our world, tackling the tough challenges. Today, I'm so pleased to be speaking with Professor Stephanie Kane from the School of Global and International Studies at Indiana University, author of Where Rivers Meet the Sea, The Political Ecology of Water. I believe it's an important work, especially if you're interested in protecting the planet's potable water and environmental activists whose lives are endangered, working not only to prevent that water from vanishing, but to provide clean water currently being denied large populations of mostly poor people, or also denied safe, clean sewage systems. Several environmental activists have been killed standing up to corporations, politicians, and governments controlling the use and distribution of water resources. Thank you so much for joining CP's Deep Dive, Stephanie. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. First, did I accurately describe what your book is about? Uh, Yes, I would say so. I would also like to expand uh, the notion that um, we're talking not just about potable water, but about healthy habitats, of which potable water can only come out of healthy habitats. But I'd like to expand readers' uh, sense of the world beyond just the human and the differences among humans, because what our relationship with water is affecting everything on the planet. What do you mean by the political ecology of water? Well, when people used to think about ecology, they just used to think about animals in these pristine um, habitats like rainforest and looking at the relationship between plant and animal species. Um, But humans have such a dramatic impact on all the habitats of the planet that you really can't think about nature anymore as separate. You have to politicize ecology because humans are political creatures. They're cultural and political creatures. So in order to understand the ecological relationships, you have to look at how nature is imagined and used and uh, lived. I, I look at cities, and of course, I look at port cities in this book, and of course, you can't look at port cities without thinking about how people transact politics, which is both global and very local in neighborhoods. Right, because a port city is one on water. It borders water. Right. Cities, port cities, and not only are they on co- tend to be on coasts, ocean coasts, but they're also on where rivers meet the sea, the name of the book, because cities need fresh water. They need to be on the coast if they're, let's say, container shipping port, or in the 16th century, big sailing vessel port. They need to have access to the ocean as an aquatic space to cross, but they also need rivers uh, to move up and down, yes, but also to uh, provide fresh water for the people, for the boats, and to carry away the wastes of the city. And what is the problem going on right now with those elements that is preventing those things? Well, for the most part, in places like I studied in this book in Brazil and Argentina, there was not a problem of scarcity of water. 
a lot of talk about water and the crisis around water is around scarcity. But in this book, I tried to illuminate how places that have a lot of water take it for granted and go ahead and pollute it without thinking. And it's really another way of creating scarcity. You have a lot of water, but if it's toxic, it becomes unusable and it it destroys the habitats in which people and animals and plants have to live. I was going to say, so it's squandered, essentially. Squandered, yes. Yeah. From your research, what is the most crucial water issue that you think we should be addressing right now? Well, I think pollution is the is the biggest problem. And the pollution that we see and the pollution that we don't see. So those of us who are in privileged um, positions in the world and have water coming into our house and have um, modern toilet systems and are hooked up to sewage systems and we live in cities with drainage systems that take away the flows, we, we, things kind of pretty much work uh, for us. And we don't really think consciously much about where the water comes from, how what we're putting down the sink affects the water table. Uh, we have lawns that are, you know, green, and they're green because we poison them, and the poison goes in the earth. So there are a lot of everyday forms of pollution that are just not thought about. And then there are the dramatic environmental injustices that are going on where it's clear you have these communities often of color and mostly of poor people who live next to industrial facilities or or shipyards or all kinds of places that are obviously being poisoned without the poisoning is going on with impunity so we have these subtle forms of pollution and we have these obvious forms of pollution and then we have these ones that are completely in, invisible I think that a lot of us saw that going on in Brazil during the Olympics. Yes. Where vast waterways were absolutely polluted, where swimmers were expected to swim in polluted areas, and some of them said they wouldn't do it. Right. And you, we all have this fantasy, these myths about places. And, you know, you go as a tourist to Brazil and, and you stay in a beautiful hotel. And from the 20th, 20th floor, you look out and you see a gorgeous seascape. But those swimmers, they had to get real close. They had to touch that water, and they saw how disgusting it was. And that's not atypical of water around cities in undeveloped or developing countries. Corporations and governments appear to be colluding to literally squander that water, allowing for devastating pollution, as well as overuse of water resources that are non-renewable. Is that a fair description of what's going on? Yes, I mean, who are governments and corporations? They are kind of like us. I think we have to fight corruption. After all, Brazil and Argentina, since I've written this book, both governments start to fall apart because there's just so much corruption and they're all charging, all the leaders are charging each other with corruption. And it's clear that when governments don't enforce the laws that are there to protect the environment, and they're colluding with corporations in order to have profits and to usually keep 
profits and not use them in the public interest, uh, this will further the problem. That's why in Brazil, when it was a military dictatorship, and in Argentina, when it was a military dictatorship, a lot of really serious pollution went on because no one was watching, and they just did whatever they felt like. While your your research took place in South America, that a lot of these same issues are true in the United States and other developed nations where there are laws in place, but they are not being enforced. And whether it's in Flint, Michigan with lead or other places in the world, how do we start getting a grasp on this? How do we start turning this around? Well, from my point of view as an anthropologist, I try to, to understand um, how people imagine and think and act in relation to these things. Why are we so destructive as a species and how does that play out in particular places and I've been looking in particular at science and the law both of which are really important tools for human beings to accomplish all the things that we want to accomplish they can be very effective but they also can be quite limited and they also can be lots of tricks can be enacted to to evade them so in, in um, Where Rivers Meet the Sea, I try to unpack some of that through looking at particular uh, landscapes where activists or neighbors are getting together and trying to protect particular waterscapes. Well, I was going to start with Lagoa Abayate. You mentioned that people were environmental activists were being murdered, and, and that was a it's a, it's a really interesting case because it's a cultural icon. Port cities are, are not just industrial sites. They're cultural sites. They're cultural conjunctures where people come from all over the world. And this one lake, Lagoa Abayate, which I talk about in Chapter 2 in Sense and Science in the Lake of Dark Waters, is um, has a long history in the local neighborhood, which is Black Bayan culture several generations of people who use the dunes for water. Since then, it's become a tourist mecca. In the 60s and 70s, um, some of the most famous uh, Brazilian musicians like Chico Buarque and his friends came to the lake and made music. It became this iconic cultural spot in, in Bahia, and tourists come by the busloads to see this lake. And it's a pretty place, and they see that it's a pretty place, but in servicing them, the local government makes money by, by allowing people to build cement platforms and having uh, loud music and drinking. And so people come from far and wide all over the world to this beautiful little spot, and, and they party. In the meantime, the local people and scientists feel like the lake is is somehow diminishing. And there's a scientific argument because pictures from the sky show that the lake is the same size. But if you look at the underground flows, something else is happening. What we have to understand about science, especially where it comes to underground water flows, is that um, we don't really know what's going on under the surface. And where, what we, where there are things that we don't understand about water, what we should be doing is using the precautionary principle where we protect things. But instead, 
We just ignore science. So that's one danger. We have knowledge. We should go by it. But where we don't have knowledge, we should try to be careful. In Argentina, between Argentina and Paraguay, there's a hydroelectric dam now. There used to be an actual frontier there, but now it's erased. It's all under the reservoir that's needed to create the hydroelectricity. So the international border is gone. Another example of this erasure of international borders by corporations and government is Barrick Gold and the, the Argentinian provincial government high up in the Andes, erasing national lines up in the mountains, actually taking off the mountaintops to get the gold out and saying, we're investing in this place. This is our mine. So there are no international borders here. And what that does effectively is erase the sovereignty of the people who live there they had laws to protect the water, but they now have been excluded from making having decision-making power over the spaces from which the water comes. These are examples where there are laws in place, but they're being subverted, again, by the corruption that you mentioned earlier. Well, especially since environmental activists fighting to protect water resources and other resources put their lives in danger. At this point, many have actually been killed, including a popular musician activist who is a friend of yours. Uh, even police are suspected of participating in these crimes, but there seems to be little justice. Yes. Uh, you're talking about Antonio Conceição Hayes? Yes. Here's a man whose father collected water for the community with mules and walking down to the spring in the middle of this little forest right near Lagoa Abayate. And what's happened in Lagoa Abayate is because it was a fishing village and now it's a tourist mecca. Poorer people who aren't who don't own the big hotels or even the middling size hotels have the problems that inner city kids have everywhere. There's drug dealing going on and, and, and violence all around them. And Antonio got this, this idea that Lagoa Abayate is theirs. This is their inheritance, but they didn't even think they could go there. So he started a group of children, Meninos de Abayate, the children of Abayate. And he got children to come off the street and train them to be environmentalists and folklorists that met the people who came off the bus and, and told them about the trees and the fish and the stories, the, the myths of the lake. And they got off the street. They had a chance to earn some money. And most importantly of all, they began to feel that this place was theirs. This was their heritage. This was the man who was gunned down in front of his house. I believe because the business interests didn't want the tourists going over to talk to the kids. They wanted the tourists going over to, to, to the bars and, you know, to spend money. He, he was gunned down and no one believes how the government resolved the case, which is they said that it was a, a drug deal gone bad. Um, he walked into a neighborhood where people didn't know him or, you know, it was just complete fakery. 
And these things happen. And so that's the end of that, you know, that effort. We hear in the media some of these cases of environmental activists like Berta Cáceres in, in Honduras who, who got gunned down. Um, yes. We hear about that in the national news. But I think people all over the world, like Antonio, who are activists just in the neighborhood level, they're not famous. Um, they don't have a persona that are going to make it into the news. But yet they're the ones also that are fighting the the smaller fights everywhere. And I think it's really important for us to to, to know where they are. And well, it seems like, as you say, most of these, the people affected by this, adversely, at least now, ultimately, everyone's going to be affected adversely. But right now, are there poor people and people of color? And that's universal. Yes. You know, how can they start taking action to prevent these things or turn the clock back. Because in Flint, Michigan, they have certainly given it a go. And in fact, people have even been indicted for crimes. But the water still isn't repaired. The The pipes are not repaired. The water is still full of lead. Right. Yes. I mean, this is what we should be paying attention to. So it, it, it brings in all the politics of, of our national priorities. And for my part, the, the people who, who got put in charge, democracy was stolen from Flint and, and Michigan. And those people are just as corrupt as the people in Brazil. What can ordinary people do to help make a difference? I guess the first thing to do is to inform themselves and become aware by reading books like yours, Where Rivers Meet the Sea. And and what else can we do? And Or is there something else that you feel we should be looking at in terms of making ourselves aware? Yeah, I, w- I would say we need to learn how to think about things. We need to learn how to think about science, what it can tell us, and, and help to use science in the world effectively. And I think we need to think about law more practically and realize that we can all be activists and fight for a law that then gets written somewhere. But, you know, it's written it's the 10th priority on a list of things that are utterly contradictory. So without implementation and enforcement of environmental laws, I mean, right now in the United States, we're living in a in a in a time where we're just going backwards and all those environmental laws are being wiped off the books as we speak. So, wow, that's a big question. I I think we all have to learn how to see what's around us and learn how to use the tools we have. And I think ethnography can help to do that because it takes us into a particular place and shows us how to look. So, when you're home, you can look around you and think about, well, where does my water come from? Right now in my town, we have a little man-made lake called Lake Monroe. And because we let it be used for recreation with diesel motors and there's farming and fertilizers, the water plant has to put a lot of chlorine in. Well, it turns out the chlorine itself produces cancer-causing chemicals. And the longer the chlorine moves in the water to the houses, the farther that distance, the more cancer-causing chemicals are in that water. Well, this just came out last year, right? So even in my little comfortable town, 
there's a gradient in the water of toxicity. Who knew about this? Well, we could pay attention to it. Most people don't. They read it in the paper and then went on their way. So we can engage wherever we are. And we can also engage when we travel. So, for instance, if you go to Brazil or Argentina or the Caribbean and, and you're, you're loving your winter vacation, it's so nice and warm and you went to the beach and, and you took a hot shower and you're showering and it felt so good. And, well, you know that water you're using? It's dry season. Most people don't have water. Some of the local people have to wait till three in the morning to get a pail of water that they can use for the next day because it's going to the hotels. Those are the things that you can start looking at and thinking about wherever you are. And I think the book can show you through the way that I went about doing field work, the kinds of things that I looked at. I didn't have special machines. I mean, I had language. I had Spanish. I had Portuguese. But I just asked. I just looked. You just kind of start paying attention, I would say. And and really, too, I have to say, enjoying, enjoying the world because all these places are beautiful in their own ways and you meet fantastic people and, and you really want to support and participate in activism because that spirit is, is of resistance is the only way that I see us getting out of this. And, of course, social media today gives us an extra arm to participate. Yes, I would say so, because we're doing it right now. So Absolutely. So what difference, let's talk about the book for a minute, just what difference do you believe it means to have your book available in an audio format as well as written? Because most research books like yours, which are actually also accessible to everyone who cares about the subject, what difference do you think it makes to also have an audio format? I love the audio format. I, I think it's a wonderful experiment. I, I don't know if people, if scholars are used to listening to ethnographies in audio versions, but I, I think it offers a very different experience of the book. Your voice is fantastic. I mean, you dramatize it. It becomes like a play. It, it brings it alive. I also think that hearing the words brings the readers closer to me, the author, in a different way than reading does. Because when I write and craft sentences, I read them out loud to me. The sound matters. And that kind of becomes invisible when you read the book, because it's kind of unconscious when you're reading. But when you say it out loud, it kind of comes alive. I also think we we had a lot of fun together i thought working on the pronunciation of all the different words because there were a lot of words in spanish and in portuguese fun for you fun for you (laughs) (laughs) portuguese was a challenge for me and i thank you so much for educating me as much as you did about it but that was it was fun working with you let's put it that way oh that's nice all right but, but I think it really made a difference that you took the trouble to learn how to say the words because what that does is bring the reader closer to the people who yes. spoke to me and to the places where these sounds, so the names of the actual places come alive when you say them the way they should be said. Because when readers read it, you know, if you don't know the language, it just is like blah, blah, blah. You know, it doesn't sound like Lagoa Giabayate, right? Yes. Um, so I think 
it has the possibility of inspiring people in ways that uh, reading a book does not, I would say. Well, thank you so much, Professor Stephanie Kane, author of Where Rivers Meet the Sea, The Political Ecology of Water, from the School of Global and International Studies at Indiana University. You are making a difference. And I believe, as I've said, this is a very important work. Please join us for our next CP's Deep Dive when I'll be speaking with Carl Rollison, who wrote Lillian Hellman, Her Life and Legend, an unapologetic socialist political rabble-rouser during the infamous McCarthy era. She refused to name names and stood up to the infamous Un-American Activities Committee. She famously said, I cannot and will not cut my conscience to fit this year's fashions. Hater or lover, she was outspoken, and she stood up and spoke at a time when something like that could endanger her career or even her life. Another writer and book making a difference. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. We record at Bayman Studio. Contact me, email cpsdeepdive, that's C-P-Z, deep dive, one word, at gmail.com. Chris is at baymanstudio.com. I'm at ColleenPatrick.com. Let's make a difference. Music